The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Heads of Rock, quit ego surfing and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 439 with guest Yunas Olusa, recorded live Monday, April 21st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's bringing his darts to Tech Ed. Any takers? Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Spring has sprung here on the East Coast and probably on the West Coast, too, for you, Mr. Campbell. Oh, yes, I can tell I'm taking fistfuls of Claritin. I, you know, I don't get the allergies, but I do get a cold, and you can hear I got a little frog in my throat. And it doesn't help that, you know, I'm down in the pub singing my ass off every, you know, three yeah, times a night. Yeah, you've been working as a musician more in the past couple of months than uh, you had for quite a while. Yeah, and I'm loving it, too. I really am. That's good, man. Yep. We uh, get this. Buddy Guy played at uh, the Guard Theater the other night. Oh, yeah. So uh, so his piano player comes up after the gig, looks at the studio and goes, oh, my God, I have to play that piano. We're jamming here till 5 in the morning. Wow, that's The dude's cool. like all over that stride, New Orleans, Dr. John. Oh, really? Yeah. Marty Sampson's his name. Good Tell guy. Tell me you turned on the recorder. I did. Oh, good. I'd love to hear that. No, you can't. <laughs> I cannot share it. I am under oh, strict oh, orders. Oh, that's too bad. Under strict orders. There will okay. be no sharing of this music, but uh, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna pressure the guy to come back, definitely, and uh, and do something for real. Anyway, let's get started with a little bit we call Better Know Framework. Awesome. And uh, by the way, I apologize in advance if you hear some sort of electronic noise. I dropped my iPhone, and now it won't go on vibrate mode. So, oh, nice. I just have to turn the volume down, so hopefully that won't interrupt us. Okay. Uh, Better Know Framework is this little segment we do on the show where I shine a little flashlight on some dark corner, some crevasse in the .NET Framework, 
It's not training. It's just a little exposition to let you know what's out there and what you can do in the .NET framework. It's always a challenge to even seasoned .NET developers to try to keep up with what's in there. And, you know, knowing the framework is your uh, best defense against uh, ignorance. Framework big, brain small. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. (laughs) I got to print a T-shirt with that on it. The framework's big, man. I'm intimidated. Yeah. So uh, DOS had like 68 API calls, and that was it. There wasn't anything else. Yeah, that's right. I I still remember a sysadmin coming over to me where I worked at Crescent saying, I want you to be a DOS expert. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. So I'm still on the uh, system.windows.controls namespace. Oh. And today we're going to talk about, and of course, you know, WPF. Today we're going to talk about the sticky note control class. Oh, really? Yes. It represents a control that lets users attach type, text, or handwritten annotations to documents. Here's the remarks from the documentation. A sticky note provides a rectangular area whose content is separate from the text, image, or other material to which the note is anchored. Sticky note control class and its members are public so that it can be styled but is no public constructor. Instances are created with a create text sticky note command and create ink sticky note command of the annotation service class. When a sticky note's created, uh, it is designated as one of two types, either text or ink. Text sticky notes have a rich text box content area that can be written and edited like any other rich text area. Users can type into it and can also cut, copy, and paste both within the note and between the note and other applications. Images can also be pasted into the note. The usual rich text keyboard shortcuts are also available. Ink sticky notes have an ink canvas content, and it can be edited like other ink canvases. For example, strokes can be erased with a tablet PC or other suitable hardware. Users can enter handwritten notes. There you go, sticky note control. That's awesome. I did not know that. Yeah, it's amazing what you find when you go spelunking in the framework. Yes, sir. Richard, you got an email for us. I do indeed. Uh, I'll just read it. Dear Richard and Carl, I have been listening to .NET Rocks for quite some time now, even though my daily work focuses on Java development. I find it, however, very good to keep track of what is happening on your, in quotes, side of the development world. Ah. Usually I am several shows behind, but I managed to listen to show 434. That was the show on the Windows kernel. And I thought I might send a note to congratulate you on that episode. Java is usually touted as platform independent, but Windows is definitely the most important platform you can run on. Being interested less in the line of business side of things, but more in underlying technology, I was really awed by the insight that a run provided into the guts of Windows. While in the Java world, many people seem to consider it good tone to bash Microsoft and everything they do, I will give this interview to some of my coworkers to try and convince them that Windows is more than just well-hidden DOS. Yeah. 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 The concurrency theme, process and thread schedule and living at the heart of it, is becoming more and more important. You bet. Even for those kinds of applications that you would not normally think of. In my day job, I am currently working on getting our merchandise management application with several million lines of code cleaned up and refactored to utilize more than a few threads at a time, just because there is no other way to keep its performance acceptable in the future. It took some time for management to understand that we cannot go ahead and add more and more features the way we did, seemingly forever, 
relying on the individual CPUs to get more and more powerful at a fast pace to support all this. But now they finally understood. Hearing that the Windows kernel team is deep into improving the necessary low-level support for the hard and software of the near future makes me optimistic that the decision to go forward with Windows-based servers for our applications was the right one. All right. So thanks again for the great material. Well, you bet. You know, this is what happens when you get a couple of geeks that just like to talk about geeky stuff. Absolutely. And and Arun, of course, had so much insight because the guy's writing the stuff. You know, nothing better than talking to the developer. And if you have uh, any other suggestions for people that you'd like to hear us talk to on .NET Rocks, both in and out of Microsoft, please send us a line. And, uh, and yeah, you send that to .NET Rocks at franklins.net. I got one little postscript from Daniel here. Okay. He said, Carl seemed to be worried that the topic was too deep for a, quote, Thursday show. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you that I had lots of fun anyway. I had a really big grin on my face when he made the nice Star Wars reference. <laughs> I just felt a disturbance in the force. It was as if 300,000 listeners simultaneously <laughs> turned off their iPods. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, a, uh, that was a good one. So keep the shows coming. I can handle it. Cheers from Germany, Daniel Schneller. Daniel, thanks for the great email. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. Absolutely. Hey, you know, we're giving away a ticket to TechEd North America 2009, which is going to be May 11th through 15th in Los Angeles. And we're not only giving away a ticket, but we're going to pay your airfare and we're going to put you up in the hotel. So you basically get all your major expenses paid and you get to go to TechEd. Hey, who wouldn't do this? And all you got to do is go to .NET Rocks, click on the green Tech Ed banner, and that'll take you to a little place where you answer a question about last week's show or a recent show. And uh, if you're listening to the show, if you're a regular listener, you'll get the question. It's an easy thing. And if you haven't, hey, there's an excuse to go listen to .NET Rocks. And uh, you just put in your answer. Every week, every Tuesday, we are going to pick a winner, and that winner is going to get a mug. And those weekly winners will go into a pool. We're going to pick a grand prize winner on April 30th and send that person all the way to TechEd. And this week's winner is Scott Klupel from Jacksonville, Florida. Scott, congratulations. You win a .NET Rocks mug, and you are in the running for the grand prize drawn on April 30th. Good luck. And And we're going to be there. We are going to be there. We're going to be doing Speaker Idol. Yes, sir. We will hopefully do a few uh, interviews, maybe, maybe some panel discussions. Have we worked that out yet? Yeah, we're doing all of that. Panel discussions, interviews, the whole nine yards. I've got a couple of regular conference sessions, but we could talk about Thursday night because it's now public. It is public. Okay, Thursday night is the attendee party, which was going to – well, you tell the story about the attendee party. Sure. Well, the attendee party got changed around. They normally, the attendee party at TechEd is an offsite affair. And they're not really calling an attendee party now, but the Thursday night party is going to be at the LA Convention Center. It's the same. They're going to have the birds of a feather stuff going on then. Yep. And you and I are the MCs on the big stage in the center, yep. sort of coordinating all the events. We're going to do the Speaker Idol finals at, while we're there. Yep. And there's going to be a huge jam session. And rumor has it, Mr. Franklin, you play the guitar. Uh, I do, and I will. And uh, are we going to be doing the 64-bit question? 
that is not quite settled yet. So okay. I hope we can do the 64-bit question, but that's – yeah, we don't know for sure. Well, and if you're unsure what the 64-bit question is, it's a quiz show that we played. And on our 200th Thought Near Rocks episode, we actually did a, a quiz where I quizzed all of the current and prior co-hosts of .NET Rocks. If you want to watch that, it's a Silverlight video. Just go to .netrocks.com and it's right there. Anyway, right. the the basic idea is that Richard and I are the center of the universe tech ed Thursday night. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Come on out and see us. All right. I think it's time to uh, – is there anything else that we want to – something nagging in the back. Oh, I know what it is. Um, a few people have inquired about the about Infusion who's hiring. They are still hiring. New York, London, Toronto, Dubai. Uh, they want SharePoint people. They want .NET rock stars. They are hiring, and um, it's a great company to work for. We constantly get email from people who have uh, been hired by Infusion saying, thank you, these guys are great. So if you're interested in this, uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will pass along your information to them. Okay, now it's time to bring out our guest Eunice Falusa is a senior consultant at Capgemini in Trondheim, Norway. He has broad experience and in-depth knowledge of the .NET framework, ASP.NET, WPF, Silverlight, and the C-Sharp programming language. He has a bachelor's degree in informatics from the Norwegian University of Technology and Science. Eunice has worked on several projects using various Microsoft technologies since 2001. Currently, he's spending most of his time exploring rich client technologies such as Windows Presentation Foundation and Silverlight. Eunice is an active member and contributor to the .NET developer community. He has an experienced speaker. For, he is an experienced speaker from industry events. Hang on. He is. He is an experienced speaker, speaking at industry events like TechEd, Remix, and MSDN Live. In 2006, Eunice was nominated Microsoft Regional Director for his contributions and involvement with Microsoft, with the Microsoft developer community. When he's not writing code, blogging, or preparing for a presentation, Eunice enjoys snowboarding, fly fishing, and scuba diving. Ooh, do you know Tim Huckabee? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have you? Uh, so, so you're the guy that we're going fly fishing with. Are you guys coming as well? Oh yeah. Now that that's going to be quite something. So uh, at the NDC, I'm taking Tim Huckabee fly fishing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're in. Sign yeah, us up. We're definitely in. This is the Norwegian Developer Conference 2009. We're talking about. Yeah. What's the uh, What's the date on that? The date, I think it's uh, end of June. Uh, it's the 17th to the 19th of June, uh, happening in Oslo, Norway. That's going to be quite an event. We've got a great speaker lineup this year. Excellent, awesome. So, wow, you're you're really into the uh, the system Windows namespace. Yeah, and then the system Silverlight and pretty much everything client based. Uh, I always have kind of like a, a sweet spot for client applications, stateful client applications. Right. Uh, and currently spending most of my time focusing on Silverlight, or at least whenever I get the chance, I'll. I'll do Silverlight and WPF stuff. And didn't you just put a year into Australia? Yeah, uh, I recently got back from uh, Australia. I spent pretty much the whole 2008 down in Australia doing like a company transfer working for the Capgemini Melbourne office. And oh, okay. that was a great experience. Got to meet some really 
really talented Microsoft developers uh, in the Microsoft community down in Australia. Well, I, I know there's lots of folks out there who are fascinated with the idea that I can be a software developer and, and sort of see the world at the same time. So it's great that, that but it was Cap Gemini that made that happen. They give you the opportunity to go down to Australia and work there for a year. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of joining one of the larger consulting companies is having the opportunity to travel a little bit and see different parts of the world. So that was definitely a great experience. Were you working on a particular project? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I was working on different projects. That's uh, more or less how I got into Silverlight. I did some uh, early prototyping and, and kind of like exploring new ways. Uh, one of Capgemini's major uh, customers in Australia could uh, take advantage of rich internet applications to be a little bit more agile, provide more like web to mashup applications to their customers. Uh, so I did some proof of concepts and prototypes in Silverlight, which was beta one at the time. So that's how I got into the, the Silverlight space. So Eunice, um, let's, let's go to the obvious question, um, which is, you know, there's so many choices for platforms and for lack of a better word, UI platforms, uh, ASP.NET, WPF, even Windows Forms is still a viable option, Silverlight. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of beyond which one do you pick, but is it possible to write a single uh, code base of an application and then, um, you know, leverage as much code as you can to, to do all to, – to, to, to present this – the UI on all of these platforms? Yeah, definitely. So, well, picking a UI platform is getting, in a way, harder and harder. I know that you've got so many options to pick from just in the Microsoft stack. Um, so one way to look at it is trying to place the different technologies along an axis of richness versus reach. So on, on the one hand, you have traditional standard-based applications uh, that have a UI based on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript where you typically use ASP.NET to build those applications. Um, and that will give you the biggest richness. On the other hand, you have technologies like WPF, which gives you a lot of richness in terms of accessing local hardware, uh, accessing the graphic card, providing rich 3D and, and stuff like that. And, and in the middle, we have Silverlight, which provides you pretty much best of, of both parts. You have the richness of WPF, while at the same time providing a web deployment model and a web security model uh, that we uh, know and love from uh, classic ASP.NET applications. Uh, and in terms of sharing code bases, I know that we got Silverlight as an option for building rich internet applications, and we got .NET running in the browser. We can actually start thinking about reusing code written on the server or written in some kind of shared library that contains our business objects and some of our business rules. Uh, and apply them on the client as validation rules and at the same time have the same code running on the server. Yeah, and also on the previous project I worked on, we actually had a Windows Forms application. Um, that The project was started, I think, back in 2007, and at the time uh, they were targeting the .NET 2.0 platform, so we didn't have an option of going for WPS. But uh, as the project moved, moved on, they decided to bring in some WPS, and instead of rewriting the application and, and pretty much showing away what we did in those, in those forms, we decided to use the capabilities of hosting WPS controls inside Windows Forms. And that way, uh, we got a chance to leverage some of the strengths of WPF to do rich visualization, while at the same time um, keeping all the investments done in Windows Forms and, and the existing code base. So that's another option if you 
if you're sitting with a Windows Forms application and want to start taking advantage of things like WPF. Uh, Jonas, how do you see the uptake of WPF out in the field? Are, are people really starting to use it now? It's been a while since it was shipped, and it, it just isn't, for me, it doesn't seem to have a lot of grip. No, I completely agree with you. And I think the major problem is that the out-of-box Visual Studio experience just just isn't good enough. Uh, developers are used to going file new Windows application and getting a good drag-and-drop experience in Windows Forms. And if they try to do the same thing in WPS, the experience isn't nearly good enough at the moment. So I think that's one of the things holding back WPS up, uh, adoption. But at the same time, I'm also seeing a lot of interest in WPS from developers looking at Silverlight and all the like all the excitement Silverlight is causing in the developer community and starting to think about, well, I like the, the cool stuff you can do in Silverlight, but uh, the limitation of the sandbox and, and some of the limitations they, they want to work around. So uh, they start thinking about if we can do this in WPS. So I'm, I'm actually seeing Silverlight as a big driver for WPF projects. And Richard, you called that one early, early on. You know, that you were always, and and I totally agree with you, which is that Silverlight is going to push WPF, not the other way around. Like, the fanfare came out from Microsoft all about WPF first, obviously. And uh, then when Silverlight, uh, when we started to see what that was all about, it became clear that Silverlight was going to push adoption of WPF, not the other way around. Well, and I I still wonder, because I think the tooling and development practice for Silverlight is very challenging still as well. Do Do you see that too, Eunice? Yeah, well, at the moment, you don't even got any form of interactive designer in Visual Studio. Right. It's uh, coming, it's coming. Hang on. It's yeah, coming, yeah. yeah no, that's the that's cool thing, though. Billy Hollis had a great quote uh, a while back I saw that said, you know, WPF guys or, or Win client guys just won't tolerate a crappy development environment, but web developers have been living in crappy development environments for so long, they'll put up with it to get Silverlight. Yeah, I think it was Andrew Burst who said that um uh, and I think it's a great quote uh, illustrating why why some of the web developers aren't too upset about the tooling. And I think, right. in fact, the tooling experience for writing Silverlight application is is still with the limited support in Visual Studio far superior from most of the HTML, CSS, JavaScript development experiences. Right. So I think it's it's just that we're used to so good tools from Windows Forms, and if something isn't that good, we're not going to jump on it, or at least not the majority of developers. And I think. Uh, you touched on a good point about the, the kind of like the interest and so far around Silverlight, uh, and it, it's gotten so much atten- attention. For instance, that makes that some developers are even concerned about the future of WPS. Like, what is Microsoft going to do with WPS? Is Silverlight the new platform to to go for? What do you mean? So, what are they going to uh, do and, with and, it? What, I I don't understand that question. What are they going to do with it? So um, it's more like with, with all the with all the focus on Silverlight, it's Microsoft. On like pushing back WPS and putting all their efforts and innovation in Silverlight, but that's definitely not not true. If you look at some of the stuff Microsoft is doing with uh, Visual Studio, oh, Visual Studio, yeah, where the entire UI is WPF based, and with Blend Trio, the entire design tool for both WPS and Silverlight is based on WPS. So, so Microsoft is definitely still committed to pushing WPS and, and yeah. improving the tooling experience. Well, that's the way we write Windows apps going forward. I mean, that's that's all there is to it. Yeah, and, and I think that's what we're going to see. So I think 2009, 2010 is going to kind of like be the big year where WPS goes 
mainstream or at least starts to go mainstream. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think Studio 2010 is where we're going to see WPF is just now part of our everyday development life. Yes, it will be it will be interesting to see when the next uh, betas uh, start start getting shipped from Microsoft official Studio 2010 and, and see how the development community reacts to some of the tooling improvements around building line of business WPF applications. So I'm really excited about mesh-enabled Silverlight applications. This is this seems like a really interesting combination. Tell us how that would work. Yeah, so at the moment you actually got three types of Silverlight applications you could write. You could write kind of like the standard Silverlight in-browser application. And then you have the option of writing a Silverlight tree out of browser apps. And then you have a third option, which is Live Framework Mesh-enabled web applications. And this was first announced at the PDC back in October. Uh, and it, the concept is that you can write web applications either in, in uh, JavaScript or Silverlight that have access to your mesh environment so that the application can start uh, writing data to your mesh and the data gets synchronized across all your devices and platforms. Uh, and not only the data, the application itself is stored and deployed into uh, mesh and gets synchronized across uh, all your devices and computers. So this enables it's pretty much a very different model from traditional civil applications in the way that you don't host the application yourself. You deploy it to an application gallery on, on Mesh, and the user installs it into their Mesh environment, and they get it either online in the, in the web Mesh environment or locally on their computer. So this is typically, uh, you could envision all kinds of applications written on this platform, things like photo sharing applications or applications to track your to-do lists or your movie collection. So uh, since all the data is stored in, in Mesh, you as an application developer wouldn't have to worry about things like hosting, uh, security, synchronization. All that would be taken care of by the live operating environment and the live framework. And you could focus on building, building the application. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich AJAX and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik AJAX controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, I need to take a couple of steps back here right. because I don't think a lot of folks know about mesh, much less the fact that you know. Then we got to get into this whole how does mesh circumvent the 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 whole Silverlight sandbox thing. So, what is mesh and where do I get it from? Good question. Yeah, so mesh is uh, Microsoft one of Microsoft's cloud services for targeting end users. So anyone can go up to mesh.com and download the mesh client and sign up for mesh. And Mesh is 
uh, a service that helps you pretty much synchronize your whole life in terms of synchronizing and sharing files, videos, photos, documents, anything you want across your computer, your mobile phone, or even your Mac. Um, and once you start putting your data up on into the cloud and getting synchronized, synchronized across uh, platforms, it's interesting to see if you could start writing applications using the same model. So you could start having uh, applications accessing this data stored in the mesh, uh, or you could store your own data uh, in the mesh as part of the application. Uh, and it's available now. I think the first version is out of beta, so you can download it and start using it yourself. And then they got a, a CTP that was announced. It was announced like it. Uh, PDC, but was updated recently in March. Uh, it gives developers access to write mesh-enabled applications. And that could either be mesh-enabled web applications that run inside mesh, or it could be desktop applications or any application that want to access uh, mesh. And the way you access mesh is either through uh, a live framework SDK, or you could use just the RESTful API or the REST endpoint. So the data model is completely open. It's all based on FeedSync and Atom and, and standard HTTP requests. Right. I, I mean, Mesh has been, it sort of changed its names a couple of times. Well, not really changed, but sort of lives in different areas because it predates Azure announcements. They bought a product. I can't remember what it was called. Was it Folder Share? Folder Share, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the original one. That, that then they stuck under the Mesh line as well. Basically, a way to synchronize folders. Yeah, I think that's where it started out. It started out as the they bought the folder share, and then they built it into Amazon Messenger, and then they took it out of Amazon Messenger, I think, and built it as a an own product. And and after that, it evolved into the whole uh, Azure platform. You know, I think in a way that uh, Mesh is probably one of the early Azure applications written by Microsoft internally. So I think in a way that they wrote live Mesh probably at the same time they were building the Azure platform as a way for themselves to see how the, how the platform scales and to have something out there before they announce the Azure initiative at PDC. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'm just cynical. I don't think that they had that big of a plan. I think that, that Folder Share was a cool idea, and Mesh is very much up Ray Ozzy's uh, Ballywick. You know, he's the groove guy. He's always been about this sort of peer-to-peer thing, and that Azure grew in parallel and, and, and it's sort of been subsumed by uh, Mesh has gone into it. Uh, and then you have the Microsoft Sync framework, which makes me always think of some kind of replication technology that's now also in sort of the mesh kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So mesh is also it's also using one of the kind of like uh, RSS add-ons or, or one of the RSS specifications Ray Elsie worked on, which is the the feed sync, which is all about making synchronization of files and data easy across standard XML feeds. So yeah, that's right. definitely an option as well. That that's how mesh came about. So, but yeah, okay. Now, uh, now that I've torn Mesh apart, because I don't hate it, but I recognize that that I think people are confused for a reason. It's it's been Mesh has been a tag to a lot of different things that don't none of which actually to me seem like a development uh, developer's problem. And now they've sort of come back around to this uh, the me- live Mesh beta as a as much more of a development platform. So. Yeah, Live Mesh started out when they first announced it. I think it was back at Mix 07. It was more as an end-user tool. You could download it, and it did file synchronization across your computer and your different devices. But as the platform grew, and Microsoft started uh, announced the SDK and the Live Framework on top of it, it becomes uh, more interesting to see what developers can do on it. 
And there's been all kind of crazy examples. I know uh, Uri Amiga at Microsoft has even mesh enabled his car and using mesh to synchronize uh, uh, diagnostics from his car and, and GPS locations and stuff like that back into his uh, local mesh store using using the mesh operating environment. Nice. And I think the cool thing about LiMesh is that all the data is stored by Microsoft uh, in the cloud. So you don't have to worry about as an application order to set up. So if I want to make the next coolest uh, to-do application, to kind of like a, the getting things done style application, uh, and if I decide to target LiMesh, I wouldn't have to worry about setting up my own infrastructure to do data storage, data authentication, and, and stuff like that. That would be provided by LiMesh, but and then I could just focus on writing uh, the to-do app. So it's a little bit different from writing standard Silverlight application, where you typically, if you want to write a line of business app in Silverlight, you write your backend services, you write your application logic, and expose it through some web services and build out um, your application. You have to take care of where the data is stored, how it's secure. Uh, so it's, it's two different platforms in a way to build Silverlight apps. Well, and, and when you first describe mesh with Silverlight, my and it, it feels like a way to circumvent the sandbox. That now I can because mesh is actually on my machine and has access to my home machine. I can use Silverlight to provide send commands to mesh that now come back into my machine and are outside the sandbox. Yeah, well, Lime mesh, even though you're right, uh, running on your local machine, you're still sandboxed, uh, more or less in the same way as as any both Silverlight free out of browser apps and standard Silverlight apps, but you don't have to worry about being online or offline. All your data access is happening uh, through Lion Mesh. So if a user adds an object, you can access it through the Lion Mesh, but you still don't have access to kind of like certain way the, the sandbox and access files directly or, or talk to local hardware and things like that. So it's, it's a still very sandbox model, but you do have options to getting at the data. So, I mean, that's the main thing that people struggle with with a sandbox is how do I get to disk? How do I write a file and how do I read a file? Yeah, so it's a, kind of like a common, common thing people run into. And I think it sold it pretty well in Civilized 2 when, when they introduced the file open dialogue and enabled developers still running inside the sandbox, getting access to some files where the user, where the user explicitly opens up a file and gives it to the developer. In Civilite Trio, they extended this and added the file save dialog so that we can now actually write Civilite applications running in the sandbox with functionality like export to a comma separated file or save this report to disk or export this XML document. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Uh, and then we have, uh, so I, I think always Microsoft is going to look at Civilite as this sandbox closed model. And that's something they, they kind of like kept when they uh, announced the Silverlight out-of-browser experience. Right. So since it's running in such a strict sandbox, it can provide a really uh, user-friendly way of getting the application online. No, sorry, offline. You just right-click and say install application. You don't get any scary uh, prompts saying that, do you trust this application? Do you want to install it locally? Because it's running in such a strict sandbox that it can't do any harm on your local system. Uh, And that's a very different model from, for instance, the Adobe Air. Yeah, what is Adobe Air anyway? Yeah, Adobe Air, that's, that's something that comes up uh, a lot, specifically, well, more recently, now that Microsoft have announced uh, an out-of-browser experience for Silverlight 3 applications. So Adobe Air is something that Adobe announced to enable web developers uh, that know HTML, JavaScript, um, Flash to 
take your existing skills and start targeting uh, the desktop. So in a way, it's a little bit opposite of what Microsoft is doing with Silverlight. Microsoft is enabling desktop developers who know .NET and perhaps some WPS to take their skills to the web. Adobe is doing the opposite thing and by enabling web developers to take their skills to write desktop applications. Right. So Adobe here is a runtime that the end user has to install on its local machine uh, in, a, in a way, it's quite similar to installing the .NET framework locally. Yeah, it sounds it. Uh, and once you have the Adobe Air runtime installed locally, you can start installing Air applications. So the Air applications run uh, in a less strict sandbox or can even run outside the sandbox, having access to your local local file system. It can do exports to disk or it can do a lot of things. So it's, in a way, it's a simplified cross-platform uh, application framework that web developers can use to write Flash and HTML apps that run on the desktop. Well, it sounds very Silverlighty. Yeah, in a way it sounds Silverlighty, but at the same time, Adobe Air requires a separate runtime. With Silverlight, it's the same runtime for applications running uh, in the browser or out of the browser. There's no separate install. Uh, okay. And with Silverlight, it's all in a, in a very strict sandbox, while in Adobe Air, you're running outside the sandbox more in a way, more similar to a full WPS application. So in a way, Adobe Air is more about writing desktop apps, not just taking a web application, a sandbox web application, and pulling it out of the browser. So they're targeting quite different scenarios in a way. One of the things I think that is a stumbling block for WPF is that not a lot of folks have the, the 3.5 SP1 framework deployed to desktops. Yeah, so for a lot of people, uh, getting the .NET runtime installed is, is too big of a, of a hassle. And, and Microsoft did a good job on this in .NET 3.5 Series back one when they did the client profile, which is a smaller subset without all the web framework and all the web libraries. And with just the stuff you need to run client apps. But still, it's significant, significantly bigger than uh, the Silverlight framework. So uh, it's harder to getting people to install it. Secondly, Silverlight is perceived as just another stand, just another browser plugin in a way similar to Adobe Flash. So it might not be the same big hurdle for end users to install it uh, compared to downloading something like the, the .NET framework. And I know they've done some work to make the framework smaller, but it's still bigger than anything else you could download pretty much. Yeah, it's definitely not four and a half meg or, or something like that, which is the current Silverlight size. So that right. makes Silverlight an attractive platform. And I also think that Silverlight, even though it's running inside the sandbox, it provides you with most applications don't need all that much local file access all the time, or they don't need to access local hardware. And in many, many cases, having access to resources running on the server through WCF or web services, it's enough. So we've seen quite a few... Uh, companies starting to look at uh, Silverlight for writing business apps, not just uh, flashy media apps or, or uh, apps providing rich video online. So I don't know that we've actually dug back into Silverlight and Mesh together. If I understand the whole thing, this, the idea now is that my Silverlight app runs through Mesh, which means it'll follow me on any machine that's part of my Mesh network. Yeah, that, that's correct. So when you write your Silverlight, Mesh-enabled Silverlight application, you deploy the application onto the Mesh application gallery. Uh, and when the user decides to install the application, uh, a Mesh object gets created on the user's Mesh. 
and that mesh object gets synchronized. And that's, that mesh object is basically your silver application. So the application follows you on any machine or on any device. So both application and data is living on mesh. That is awesome. I, I love that. Uh, first of all, mesh is great to begin with, but then now that, you know, a Silverlight app can follow you around and pick up data, like, Well, and also, the, you know, think about the UI you've got following you around. Like, that is just a very cool application approach. Uh, and it, you know, we think about mesh from the point of view of, like, folder share, just keep my files in sync, that sort of right. thing. With the idea that I have, I'm keeping my, my lightweight apps in sync. Yeah. That, that, you know, there's certain class of apps that that would work for incredibly well. But it also brings up the point, why not just write an Ajax-enabled web page? Yep. Yeah, and you, and you could do that. The, the, live, uh, the live mesh-enabled web applications can either be written in Silverlight and, and Ajax, but writing it in Ajax uh, would limit you to using JavaScript, HTML, and CSS for the UI for your mesh application. It would just work uh, the same way. It would get synchronized across your devices and even work offline, but you would have a much more limited experience uh, building your UI compared to using using the full Silverlight and SAML to build out your, your application UI. Yeah. There's just so many options, of course. That, um, But, you know, we, we've hashed over, you know, in, in various other shows when to use what. And that, that's sort of, I don't know as if that's so much of a big, the big decision now. I think the bigger decision is how can I do all of these things, right? How can I architect my application in a way so that, I can use all of the UI platforms because, you know, that's the way that was the argument with Windows Forms and ASP.NET. And it became clear um, early on to me anyway, that it was going to be very, very difficult to do both a stateful and a stateless application at the same time with the same business base. But now, you know, now things have changed. Yeah. And, and I completely agree. That's, that's one of the things I actually tried out with one of the sample applications that I've written up in my blog. It was basically a simple uh, dialogue application to keep track of your uh, dialogue history. So using the same code base, I was able to start out with a Silverlight application, then port it over to WPF and have it run on the desktop, storing data locally, and then finally replacing some pieces of that application, basically the data entry, uh, with a data, data access class that was accessing the live framework, and that way I could have the same dialogue application running on live mesh. And I think that's a good example of the type of application that would uh, work really well in, in live mesh. Right. Uh, so imagine being a diver traveling the world. You could have your application installed in the live mesh. You could access it from an internet cafe, log your dive, then move on, and the next time you go diving, you can log on, and then you have all your dives synchronized into the mesh. And that, that's possible using Silverlight and using C-sharp. You can reuse most of the code across WPF, Silverlight, and even mesh-enabled apps. And then you get into support frameworks like CSLA.net, Prism 2, and things like that. And, and then, you know, those can really help you. Yeah, and that's, that's another cool thing about Silverlight being .NET-enabled. It's the fact that there's just so, much, so many good libraries out there, that were, out there that was written for the full .NET framework. And as soon as Silverlight 2 shipped, people started porting those libraries over to Silverlight. So you got the Prism 2.0, which is providing kind of like guidance and, and a framework, or I should say a library that supports building composite Silverlight apps. And then we have 
Silver FX, which is Nikhil's uh, project, which provides things like uh, effects, commanding, um, support for the model view, view model pattern. And then we have Rocky, which, of course, has been on the show multiple times, who have CSLA, CSLA Live, which provides a, a lightweight implementation of CSLA for Silverlight. So it's definitely kind of like a very, already, even though Silverlight has only been out for less than a year, it's already many like excellent supporting libraries out there. Now, you mentioned the, the model view, view model pattern. Uh, how is this going to help us? Yeah, it's, it's a quite, quite tricky name, the model view, view model, or often re- referred to just as the view model. So the idea is to, of course, try to separate your concerns. It's one of those patterns that deal with how, how do you separate the different responsibilities of, of your application. Where do I put my view code? Where do I put my model code? And where do I put my interaction logic? So the view model is about taking advantage of some of the data binding capabilities in WPF and Silverlight and providing a bindable model uh, that sits between your real model, say your web services, and the view. And then you implement the iNotify property change pattern and expose the properties you want to buy through this view model. Uh, And using that, you can have views for all the properties that are declaratively bound so all your UI components are declaratively bound against properties on the view model. And then for, for interacting with the view model, say, to push changes back to the server or to cancel an edit or to um, delete an item, you use commands. So instead of having a, a, an event handler and code behind, where you call the method, you use command binding and bind uh, a button against an operation or a command on the view model. Uh, and using this concept or this this design pattern, you can end up with applications where you have pretty much no code behind in your SAML files. And the big benefit of doing that is that you give your designer, if you're lucky enough to have a UI designer on your team or the guy responsible for doing the SAML in Blend, he gets a lot more freedom because he doesn't have to worry about losing an event handler on the button if he decides to rename it. Or a designer might say that instead of using a button to invoke this action, I want to use the video file. Uh, that might not be the best user experience, but it's still possible. And by not having any code behind, you could just rebind and say that, well, the command should be invoked if you click on the video instead. And it also makes it easier to, and by separating out the view model and the view, you can also start mocking your data access. So, for instance, when the view is being, the view model is being consumed inside Blend, you can have a dummy uh, data access layer that would provide just design time data. And then when the application is actually running in the browser, you can replace that data access class with the real one uh, running against the real web services. So it helps your designers in two ways. First off, you don't have any code behind it. You can screw up and have to worry about it. And secondly, uh, you can start providing design time data, which is key if you're going to really take advantage of styling and, and UI design in Blend. This also sounds like it lends itself great to, to testing, that you have this great isolation of concerns so that you could test each piece independently. Yeah, and that's, of course, is, is another big benefit of having this clear separation of panel files with more or less no code behind and this view model is that you can unit test the view models independently. And it's also a lot easier to share the view models between WPF and, say, Silverlight. And that's the technique I use to port the dialogue, dialogue application from Silverlight to WPF because there are still quite a few changes specifically in the uh, more more so in the SAML than in the actual .NET code. So if you have kind of like pure C-sharp view models, 
uh, there's a big chance those UMOs can be ported directly over to WPS with little or no change. And then you can focus on, on doing the SAML or working out the SAML changes in your WPS version of the Silverlight app. Right. So it's another like, good reason for keeping those things separated. And so this gets back to the Nirvana that, that Carl referenced of, I want to write my code once and run it in any of these environments. Well, or at least I want to architect my code in such a way that it makes it easy to to use the U, different UI platforms without changing the uh, back backend code. Absolutely. And this seems to lend itself to exactly that. Yeah, and I, th- I think we're going to see this pattern quite a few times where we start out with a like a lightweight web application, like a silverlight rich internet application. Uh, and then perhaps if you run into some scenarios where you need, say, integration with Office or integration with local disk or databases, you can take to kind of like opt out and scale up to a, kind of like a full-blown desktop application using most of the same application logic. So I, I definitely think that scenario is becoming uh, more and more possible uh, with, with Silverlight and WPS. Awesome. So we got a development team all hot to go on Ajax and, you know, the MVC framework in ASP.NET. What's my pitch for Silverlight as a UI platform for a business application? I think the number one uh, pitch for Silverlight as as a platform for business application is the fact that you can write .NET and C Sharp or VB.NET on both the server and the client. So instead of having your developers doing the server-side code in C-sharp and then having to do the Ajax front-end using JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, they can write C-sharp on both the server and the client. So I think for many businesses, uh, this is going to save costs because the developers don't have to learn uh, Ajax framework and how to write JavaScript, how to debug JavaScript code. Instead, they can just use the same skills to write uh, C-sharp and .NET on the client. I think that's kind of like the number one pitch. But I don't see Ajax going away anytime soon, right? Because you still have to, if you, if you really need that broad reach uh, spanning across multiple platforms, at the moment we don't got a Civilized 2 implementation for Linux, for instance. Mm-hmm. Or if installing the Civilized plugin is too much of a hurdle for your web application, you're still going to have those big profile sites, for instance, like Facebook, where they go through the efforts of writing all the like the Web 2.0, the rich UI in Ajax. But for a typical business application, it might be easier just to get the same type of interaction that users start to expect by using Silverlight instead of having to do it in, in JavaScript. Um, it, does Google Chrome support Silverlight? Uh, yeah, Google Chrome is not uh, an officially supported browser by Microsoft. And I think the main reason is the fact that Chrome... Uh, or at least at the, I'm not sure if it's out of beta, but at the time Silva 2 was released, Chrome was in beta, so Microsoft don't want to officially support it. But uh, Chrome runs Silverlight just fine. So you, you got Silverlight running on, on all the major browsers, Safari, Firefox, IE, Chrome, and even, even Opera with a few tweaks can run Silverlight. Have you used Chrome? Yeah, I definitely used Chrome. And I think one of the, one of the things I liked about Chrome was the application shortcuts which is basically a little bit similar to the Silverlight Auto Browser experience, where you can take a website or a web application like, say, Gmail or Hotmail and make it available as a shortcut on your desktop. Uh, and even if you're not going to do anything offline stuff, just having the fact that you can have an application with all the, the browser Chrome and all the, the address bar and the favorites and the tabs uh, could, could be a big um, productivity improvement, right? Because imagine 
spending all your time in a web application, if, if it's a line of business application deployed on the web, and 30% of your screen real estate is taken up by tabs and address bars and favorites. And I also think that having easy access to just opening up a new type, typing in YouTube, could be quite tempting if you're running your app inside the browser. So being able to kind of like create those application shortcuts is a good way of having uh, having just a clean, no, no browser Chrome to keep focus on your on yeah. your app. Yeah. Well, Eunice, we're coming down to the end of the show. Is there anything that uh, anything else you want to just shout out or? Or plug your blog, perhaps? Yeah, I guess the two two main things I should plug. I guess first off, my blog. Uh, I got a blog up on. It's my first name dot. My last name is Jonas dot f o l l e s o e dot n o. I've uh, done a lot of blogging on civil life, mold review, mold pattern, and things like that. Uh, I guess second thing is uh, just um, go back to the to the Norwegian Developer Conference just to remind people that that's happening on the. 17th and the 19th of June. So I'll be speaking about the mobile view model pattern for building SAML applications for both Civil and WPS. And I'll also be giving a presentation on building business applications in Civil Tree. So uh, I really hope to see, see you guys there. Uh, is the fishing trip on the weekend after? Yeah, that's the plan. So Tim Huckabee, uh, our fellow RDE, and I guess he's been on the show quite a few times, it's also speaking about Surface and SAML and WPF at NDC. So we got this fishing trip plan after the conference. We're flying up to Luxel, which is all the way on the top of Norway, way above the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Uh, and we're going uh, fly fishing for salmon on the weekend. So you're invited to come along if you want, if you want to. That is going to be so much fun. Eunice, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a great talk. Thank you very much for having me. All right. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC and Summer.